the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the, what is this, Thursday already? Is it Thursday already? The Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing Sam Moppin Engineering. Today we'll talk with John Hopper. He's the author of Questioning God. Answers answering questions worth asking. He's with Search Ministries. We'll also talk with David Kubal. He's with Intercessors for America and Intercessors for Ukraine. We're going to talk about uh, what he's observing there and how we can pray effectively, what Ukrainians need from us in terms of how we direct our prayers. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, the president spoke from the NATO headquarters in Brussels, Belgium earlier today. This was uh, a much anticipated uh, press conference or speech. I'm not sure quite how to characterize it, but the president made several announcements and there was a great deal of anticipation because this was an emergency meeting of NATO, presumably to address the critical needs of the Ukrainian people and the requests of Ukraine's president, Volodymyr, um, uh, who had asked for a number of um, of weapons and weapon systems. Well, the president said that he marked uh, today or the day that he was speaking, and I'm not sure if it's today or tomorrow from where he's standing. But anyway, he made the point that it's been a month since Russia began the carnage in Ukraine, the brutal invasion there. And he said that um, they held a NATO summit the very next day. At that time, they overwhelmingly uh, wanted that summit um, to be a demonstration of absolute unity on three key important issues. And he reminded us of what those three issues are and said that they have managed to maintain what they had hoped for at that time. Well, first was to support Ukraine with military and humanitarian assistance. The second was to impose the most significant um, sanctions, economic sanctions regime ever in order to cripple Putin's economic and uh, economy rather and punish him for his actions. And third was to fortify the eastern flank of the NATO allies who were obviously very concerned and somewhat uh, worried what would happen. And the president went on to say that we accomplished all three of these, and today we're determined to sustain those efforts and to build on them. The United States was committed, or rather has committed, to provide over $2 billion in military equipment to Ukraine since he's become president. Anti-air systems, anti-armor systems, ammunition, and our weapons are flowing into Ukraine as I speak. So that answers one of the questions I think many have had, are the Ukrainians receiving what we've promised? And today, the president went on to say, I'm announcing the United States have prepared to commit more than a billion dollars in humanitarian assistance to help get relief to millions of Ukrainians affected by the war in Ukraine. Many of the rest uh, the refugees will wish to stay in Europe closer to their home, expecting that they will prevail in this conflict and will eventually return home. Um, but we uh, we've also uh, will welcome 100,000 Ukrainians to the United States. The president announced with a focus on reuniting families. So, uh, again, this was much anticipated. The president said that we will an, uh, invest three hundred and twenty million dollars to bolster democratic resilience 
and defend human rights in Ukraine and neighboring countries. And we're also coordinating with the G7 and the European Union on food security as well as energy security. And he said he'd have more to say about that tomorrow. We're also announcing new sanctions of more than 400 individuals and entities aligned with um, the European Union, more than 300 members of the Duma, oligarchs and Russian defense companies that fuel the Russian war machine. The president went on to say that in addition to the 100,000 U.S. forces now uh, stationed in Europe to defend NATO territory, NATO established, as you already know, four new battle groups in Romania, Hungary, Bulgaria and Slovakia to reinforce the Eastern Front. Uh, Putin was banking on NATO being split, the president pointed out. And in my early conversation with him in December and early January, it was clear to me he didn't think that we could sustain this cohesion. And the president boasted that they have managed to do just that. NATO has never been more united than it is today. Putin is getting exactly the opposite of what he intended. Then the president took um, questions from the uh, the audience, the reporters who were assembled there. Again, a much anticipated speech in that the president at this emergency NATO meeting uh, came from the meeting, which was relatively short given the seriousness of issues. But I suppose they have conversations leading up to this and it may be symbolic that they're all in one uh, one location. But nonetheless, um, these were the announcements that the president made with regard to our disposition, not only toward Ukraine, but also toward NATO, the G7 and the European Union. Meanwhile, President Biden requested two members of the president's Council on Sports, Fitness and Nutrition, Herschel Walker and Dr. Um, Mehmet Oz, who were appointed by former President Trump to either step down or face termination with their U.S. Senate runs in Georgia and Pennsylvania. So far, Dr. Oz says, no, not going to do it. Seattle is experiencing a criminal and humanitarian emergency, according to a bakery owner who indefinitely closed her business over safety concerns. And saying there's still spies among us, a former Russian spy, Jack Barksy, uh, says, uh, who's now living in the United States, says spies still are lurking in the United States and likely operating on high alert within the country. Senator Durbin is seeking GOP support. The chairman is still looking for a bipartisan confirmation of Judge Katanji Brown Jackson to the Supreme Court. She did not attend the hearings earlier today and a vote for the uh, for the Senate committee. And ultimately, the full Senate is expected in the near term. Well, the Finnish are supporting NATO membership support for in Finland to join NATO has doubled in a year with a majority now voicing support for the first time since polling started back in 1984. The Green Berets have had a deep impact on Ukraine's fight to defend itself from a Russian invasion, despite not being directly involved. There's more of a story behind that statement. I'd be interested in learning more. You probably would, too. Laura Ingram points out or predicts rather that Judge Brown Jackson's judicial record shows that if elevated to the high court and it's expected she will be, uh, Jackson will simply be a rubber stamp for whatever the far left demands. Carry uh, permit fees are being cut in South Dakota. The Republican governor, Christy Nome on Tuesday signed legislation that repeals all concealed carry permit fees in that state. 
Former President Trump sued Hillary Clinton, the Democratic National Committee and a host of other parties on Thursday, accusing them of plotting to falsely accuse him of collusion with Russia ahead of the 2016 presidential election. In the run up to the 2016 presidential election, Hillary Clinton and her cohorts orchestrated an unthinkable uh, plot, one that shocks the conscience and is an affront to this nation's democracy, the lawsuit states. Acting in concert, the defendants maliciously conspired to weave a false narrative that their Republican opponent, Donald J. Trump, was colluding with a hostile foreign sovereignty, end quote. Well, the suit further alleges that the scheme was conceived, coordinated and carried out by top level officials at the Clinton campaign and the DNC, including the candidate herself, who attempted to shield her involvement behind a wall of third parties. The suit claims that the uh, dissemination of the Steele dossier, which contained unfounded claims about Trump's connections to Russia, was part of that initiative. Trump is demanding a jury trial for the suit, which was filed in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Florida. Well, according to the city's top cop, uh, robberies rather in Los Angeles involving a firearm have increased 44 percent this year. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got uh, John Hopper coming up later this hour, questioning God, answering questions worth asking. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next couple of segments, John Hopper, author of Questioning God, Answering Questions Worth Asking. He is a... Uh, uh, lives in Houston and, and serves as an area director for Search. It's an organization dedicated to facilitating open conversations about life and faith. He's coming up in our next couple of segments. Well, three years after Brett Kavanaugh was accused of sexual assault, the media keeps repeating the line that the accusations against him were credible. Howard Stern didn't hide his disappointment that mask mandates were being lifted despite a reduction in new COVID-19 cases over the past few months. And having its analysis slammed, the New York Times took heat for claiming Republicans used appeals to racism and took nods to conservative fringes during the Supreme Court hearings. In an op-ed uproar, an MSNBC op-ed focused on the assertion that far-right white supremacist groups are using online workout chats to find and encourage extremist beliefs. Tom Homan uh, suggests that the Biden administration is implementing an Immigration agenda causing great damage to our country and is attempting to hide and manipulate the data. Tucker Carlson reminds that nominee Judge Katanji Brown Jackson was asked what should have been the easiest question ever posed. What is a woman? And she couldn't answer, or at least wouldn't. Josh Gottheimer, he insists that we need to ensure officers and police departments have the tools they need to fight crime and protect themselves, our families and our communities. And in a demonstration of peacock pride, former coach and longtime TV analyst Fran Fraschilla says the run by uh, St. Peter's and NC2A tournament is what March Madness is all about. Admitting quitting regrets, over 70 percent of workers regretted quitting their jobs during this rather unusual season. Well, the United States has officially accused Russia of war crimes. The U.S. government announced on Wednesday that military forces ordered by Russian President Vladimir Putin to invade Ukraine have committed war crimes because of their deliberate targeting of civilians. 
We've seen numerous credible reports of just indiscriminate attacks and attacks deliberately targeting civilians, as well as other atrocities. The State Department said in a press release, Russia's forces have destroyed apartment buildings, schools, hospitals, critical infrastructure, civilian vehicles, shopping centers and ambulances, leaving thousands of innocent civilians killed or wounded. Many of the sites Russian forces have hit have been clearly identified as in use by civilians. This includes the Maripol Maternity Hospital, as the U.N. Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights expressly noted in a March 11th report. It also includes a strike that hit a Maripol theater, clearly marked with the word um, uh, Russian for children, in huge letters visible from the sky. From Town Hall, when asked about how Russia would face accountability, given they sit on the U.N. Security Council, Ambassador at, Ambassador at Large for Global Criminal Justice, Bath Van Shake, told reporters domestic and international courts are available options. According to a NATO assessment, Russia has lost 15,000 soldiers since the beginning of the war three weeks ago. Russian leader Anatoly Chibayas resigned and, in protest and fled Russia over the Ukraine invasion. Reports suggest that Russian government official Antony Chibayas stepped down from his position in the highest level display of opposition to President Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. His role as special envoy, specifically regarding climate and sustainable development, appears a, um, a small one, but he has supported and assisted Putin for decades. In Bloomberg News, they uh, break the story that he gave Putin his uh, first Kremlin job, stepping down as Russia's climate envoy and has left the country over Putin's war, according to two people familiar with the situation, becoming once again the highest level official to break with the Kremlin over the invasion. President Biden flies uh, to Europe for an extraordinary meeting with NATO. The president's itinerary included a NATO extraordinary meeting. That's how it's being uh, it was characterized, I should say. A group of seven meeting and a summit with uh, European leaders all today and a one-on-one engagement with president of Poland on Saturday. The president must also contend with tensions between those European nations that want to do more to aid Ukraine and the U.S. position, which is prioritized not escalating the conflict. The Washington Post reports that while in Poland, the president plans to hold an event related to refugees, which could include meeting with some of the Ukrainians who've been streaming across the border. Amy Gutman, the U.S. ambassador to Germany, told reporters this week in Berlin that the Biden administration is intent on making sure that the United States concern and interest in helping with the refugee situation is front and center. The United States is preparing to ease the burden on Europe by taking refugees Gutman also said, and the uh, the president uh, reinforced earlier today. Well, the question is, is NATO starting to get tough on Russia and China? Well, NATO took on two of the world's superpowers on Wednesday and condemned both Russia and China as the 30-member alliance uh, looks to counter the growing threat of a biological, chemical, or nuclear attack. Russia must stop its nuclear saber-rattling. This is dangerous and it's irresponsible. That's a quote from NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg speaking to reporters. Any use of nuclear weapons will fundamentally change the nature of the conflict, and Russia must understand that a nuclear war should never be fought. He went on to say they can never win a nuclear war. Security officials have increasingly warned that China may look to provide material support to Russia, a move um, the president warned against during his call with Chinese President Xi Jinping last week. 
Moscow has accused Washington and Kiev of plotting to use chemical weapons against Russian forces as they remain stalled across Ukraine for a fourth week. But Stoltenberg shot down the accusation as absolutely false and warned that NATO is increasingly concerned by the rhetoric. From the Washington Post, they write that Ukrainian forces claimed Tuesday to have retaken control of a strategically important town outside of Kiev, a nation sign that could um, uh, they could be beating back Russia's brutal week-long effort to seize the capital as the Kremlin intensifies its attack across the country. Idaho's governor signed pro-life legislation saying, I remain committed to protecting the lives of pre-born babies. From that story, the bill was modeled after a Texas law that passed last year. It allows the public to sue anyone who performs or facilitates an abortion. Idaho is slightly different. It only allows families to sue abortion providers, but doubles the $10,000 maximum that Texas plaintiffs can seek. The law amends last year's fetal heartbeat bill, which would make it illegal to perform abortions after around six weeks of pregnancy. From Idaho News 6, the Idaho Family Policy Center said in a statement the organization is confident the law will survive any legal challenges and will protect unborn babies. This comes off the heels of West Virginia banning abortion for babies with disabilities. A Canadian Home Depot shamed employees for having white Christian privilege. A Canadian branch of the um, uh, international chain sparked outrage after it posted a notice to employees about the benefits of their privilege and included a checklist for those who are white, male, Christian, cisgender, able-bodied and heterosexual. A spokesperson from Home Depot's U.S. headquarters confirmed to the Post that the white privilege notice was material from its Canadian division. She said it hadn't been approved by the company's diversity and inclusion department, however. The flyer had a Home Depot logo at the top. Well, NATO was preparing to bolster the defense of the eastern countries. NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg said Wednesday the alliance is likely to bolster troops along the eastern flank, deploying four new battle groups in Bulgaria, Hungary, Romania, Slovakia. I expect leaders will agree to strengthen NATO's posture in all domains with major increases in the eastern part of the alliance on land, in the air and at sea. Stoltenberg uh, said during a press conference ahead of the NATO Leaders Summit in Brussels today. Well, since the Kremlin's uh, invasion on the tw- 24th of February, NATO has readied 140,000 troops in the region and mobilized a colossal war chest of advanced military equipment. Of the approximately 140,000 troops, the United States has provided the lion's share with 100,000 soldiers. From the Daily Wire, in addition, the U.S. ambassador to NATO, Julianne Smith, said that a longer-term stationing rather of troops in the area is being considered. Permanent stationing could be one solution or persistent rotation as another option that could be on the table. So at this point, what we need to do is have our military commanders give us the best advice that they can come up uh, with, uh, with specific proposals, and then as an alliance, look at what the security environment requires. Well, this is happening at a similar time when Estonia is calling for a permanent NATO force. And Israeli Prime Minister uh, Naftali Bennett is continuing uh, efforts to negotiate peace between Russia and Ukraine. The prime minister continued his efforts to mediate between Moscow and Kiev, Moscow rather, and Kiev, speaking with Russian President Putin on Wednesday. Bennett shared his evaluation of the situation, considering his contact with leaders of a number of foreign countries, and referred to ideas related to the continuing negotiations. 
The Times of Israel reports the two leaders last spoke on March the 14th. Bennett has held a handful of calls with both Putin and Ukrainian President Zelensky as he has sought to exploit Israel's working ties with both countries to help mediate a ceasefire that will end the war. There's also some uh, rumor that the president is trying to encourage Zelensky to give up land for peace, which hasn't worked well for Israel. Uh, That speculation, that informed speculation, has not yet been confirmed. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with John Hopper. He is the author of Questioning God, Answering Questions Worth Asking. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Search Ministries has released the ultimate guide for seekers and non-believers with relevant and accessible answers to common questions about Christianity and about God. Well, Search Ministries is a national organization. It regularly engages people who express thoughts just like, well, Christians are hypocrites or the Bible is an outdated book or is there a God and why wouldn't he let uh, why would he let bad things happen? Well, the book addresses these and many more big questions on life. Well, search has found that uh, whether from Portland to Charlotte, to Nashville to Minneapolis, people ask many of the same questions about God and Christianity. And to address these questions, they're excited to release Questioning God, Answers to Questions Worth Asking. Uh, the 15 questions uh, that are presented in the book are asked by believers and unbelievers alike. Um, and as far as my next guest is concerned, um, each one is worthy of a thoughtful and friendly response. Well, John Hopper is our guest. He serves as an area director for Search Ministries in Houston, Texas, where he facilitates gatherings and conversations aimed at helping others think more deeply about God and life. Prior to joining Search, he worked in the private sector first as a tennis pro and later in real estate. Well, after transitioning into full-time ministry, he served uh, for 16 years as a pastor at Bridgepoint Bible Church in Houston. Uh, He has always enjoyed learning and was in school for, he says, far too long, earning his Ph.D. And joins us today to talk about these um, thoughtful questions that deserve a thoughtful answer. Thank you so much for joining us, John Hopper. Well, it's great to be with you today, Georgine. Well, this is an important book because there are all kinds of questions circulating out there. And I think for a lot of believers in particular, they're a little intimidated by questions they imagine they might be asked or are actually being asked and don't quite know how to answer the book or answer the questions. Rather, let me ask you to whom the book is recommended for those who want to be good apologists or those who are seeking answers to these challenging questions. Yeah, you know, I, I really wrote the book, Georgine, for people who who personally have those questions. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it's it's really quite appropriate for somebody that um, maybe doesn't believe in God yet, or has trouble believing the Bible or Jesus. And it's it's really addressed to be able to answer people like that that have questions. Now, of course, in reading the book, if you are a believer already. It gives you a whole lot of uh, sort of understanding how you might answer someone's questions like that if you've got a friend or a family member who who does have those questions. So it works both ways. Um, but I was very uh, um, uh, particular in terms of writing it so that you could feel free giving it away to mm-hmm. somebody who wasn't a believer yet. Well, tell us a little bit about Search Ministries and how the book came about. Yeah. So Search Ministries is... Uh, it's a nationwide ministry that we uh, put together gatherings and forums where people can explore Christianity, where we make it as 
easy and as safe as possible for people to say, hey, I don't believe that, or why do Christians believe this, or, you know, I don't even think there's a God. And we just try to kind of set the table so that people feel like they can ask those kinds of questions or put their thoughts uh, together. And in the in the process, we've kind of come up with or sort of recognized the questions that just keep getting asked over and over again. And that's how this book came to be. So the 15 questions here are 15 questions that we hear again and again across the country. You divided the book up into different segments that focus on the types of questions that are being asked. The first part is about God. The second about Christians. Uh, the Bible is the third and Christian claims uh, the fourth. And again, these are based on questions that you and search ministries have identified as being very common among people who are either skeptical, searching, or perhaps disillusioned by the, the, the claims of the scriptures or who God is and, and so on. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's exactly where the questions came from. In fact, sometimes people ask me, like, how, how can you, you know, address people's questions? I mean, they've got so many different questions. Well, Really, what we've found is that these 15 questions here are probably 90% of what we hear. So um, we keep hearing the same questions over and over again. So we wanted to address them in this book. Well, let's address some of those questions, uh, beginning with the first part of the book that focuses on God. What evidence do we have to know that God is real, and how do we prove that He exists? This is a question that's being asked. How do you answer that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think there's a number of different pieces of evidence. I'll, you know, I'll share one of them today. And you know, if you were to go into a, a room that uh, was highly organized, things were just really put in their place, and um, they, you could tell it wasn't just sort of strewn all around the room, but but things were just very neat and tidy. You would assume that there was uh, an intelligent being behind that, that it didn't just sort of fall into place that way. Well, when we look at the universe and we begin to discover how remarkably fine-tuned it is, um, and so by fine-tuning, for example, I mean, take gravity, for example. If gravity was slightly more, then all the uh, planets would have collapsed on themselves. If it was slightly less, they would have they'd sort of just spread out and never coalesced in the first place. And that fine-tuning is remarkably, like it, it has to be just as it is. And that's the case for a number of sort of physical constants throughout the universe, uh, dozens of them, in fact. They all have to be just as they are for there to be any conscious life in the universe. Now, that's to me like a, a room that you've walked into that's really neat and organized. Mm -hmm. it, it cries out for sort of a, an, an intelligent uh, creator behind it. Now, many people say that they don't believe in God because of science. What you've just described mm. suggests that there are elements in science that do just the opposite. But what's your advice when dealing with a situation like this that say that a person who probably hasn't delved as deeply into science as they might um, might seem uh, suggests that science is essentially a disproving that God exists or could mm. exist? Yeah, you know, if somebody makes that sort of claim to me, I kind of want to find out exactly, you know, why they think that mm -hmm. what piece of science actually would exclude God. Um, sometimes people just say that off sort of the top of their head, but they don't really have an example for that. So I, I like to sort of discover that, first of all. But, you know, one of the things that when they do surveys of scientists, and I'm talking about elite scientists across the world, these elite scientists do not believe that science and religion are at fundamental odds with one another. Now, it is true that scientists are more likely to be atheists than non-scientists, but if they're asked if this is because there's a fundamental 
you know, conflict between the two, uh, 85% of the time they'll say no. <laughs> so scientists themselves don't see a fundamental conflict. I'm not so sure why we should be doing that in the name of, of science. Mm. So, um, now, I think one of the issues, Georgine, is that um, people think that because science has discovered things, that that sort of displaces God. And it doesn't displace God. It just shows us how God made something. So, um, you know, if we sort of discover, uh, say, there's a, a pot that's boiling on the stove and we sort of discover certain things about sort of boiling water and the molecules and how fast they move when it's boiling, that doesn't do away with the fact that there was a person who put the pot on the stove to begin with. So, so uh, just because we've discovered how things work and science shows us those things doesn't displace God. Uh, you also discussed the the notion that there are people who don't believe in God because they feel that their life is good without him. Should mm. we convince those people that it isn't true? And, and what approach would you recommend? Yeah. Well, I probably wouldn't say, no, your life isn't good. Without <laughs> God, so I don't know how well that would work. But uh, I think um, sometimes people don't realize how necessary God is for the things that are important to them. So, for example, most people want purpose in their life. Uh, they don't want this, everything they do to be sort of worth nothing. But if we're just cosmic accidents, we're just sort of what the sort of the box spilled out, um, uh, then how can we say we have purpose? So um, if you just sort of knocked over a box full of Scrabble pieces and they fell on the ground, you probably wouldn't look at those pieces and say, what's the purpose of those pieces on the ground? You say, that's just what knocked out of the box. You know, it's just the way they are. And so it would be for us. We literally wouldn't have purpose. Or take love, for example. If there's no God who made us to be loving and to love, then we're just, when we just say we love something, we love our child or we love a friend, we're really just having a chemical reaction towards them. We're just biological machines that are responding to our environment. It really takes there being a God for us to, again, love or to be lovable. So there's a lot of things that uh, sort of we take for granted that that would become very thin if there wasn't a God. And so I like to try to help people say, you know, there's a lot of things that you hold on to in life, like love and reason and purpose and justice. And all of those things require there to be a God. Sometimes people question their faith because they believe God has disappointed them. They had certain expectations. Mm. God didn't meet those expectations, and that produces a struggle. How do you address a person who rejects God out of disappointment or expectations that were perhaps inconsistent with what God's intentions might have been? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, everybody's story in regards to pain and suffering is different, and so I'm always really careful to listen to people's stories. Sometimes mm-hmm. when they, they make a claim that, you know, uh, how can there be a God if there's so much pain and suffering? And they, you know, they, they really aren't look, looking for an answer <laughs> So to that question in particular. They're wanting to know whether you'll listen to their story of pain and suffering. And so it's always really important for me to sort of see if there is such a story behind the question. Um, now, if, if there is such a story and then they're still saying, yeah, but why would God allow this? And I, I think what's important uh, for people to understand is that in Scripture, God doesn't give one answer as to why he allows certain things or why pain and suffering comes into our lives. And so we have to be careful not to give sort of a one-size-fits-all answer. Sometimes, for example, in Scripture, it says that the reason people experience pain and suffering is because 
they sin. They did something wrong. <laughs> you rob a bank, you might go to jail. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, um, other times, though, God makes it very clear, no, um, this did not happen because of sin. This has happened for my glory to be shown or for your character to be built. So uh, there's different reasons as to why God would allow pain and suffering. And there's not really a one size fit all. And sometimes it's hard for us to know exactly why God would would uh, allow it uh, in in our lives. But that's not to say just because we don't know the reason that there isn't a reason. Yeah. And I love what you said early in your response that we really need to listen. Sometimes we assume we understand what's at the core or the heart of the question when, in fact, we don't. And maybe people do want it to be heard and to um, to hear and see in us that we're willing to listen. So that's an important element of trying to get at how to respond to someone in a way that uh, that will be meaningful. Once again, we're talking about the book titled Questioning God, Answering Questions Worth Asking, and it covers a, a variety of issues that are very common among those who are skeptics or believers who are perhaps discouraged in their faith. We're going to continue our conversation with uh, John Hopper, who is the author of the book, in just a moment, but I need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with John Hopper. He serves as an area director for Search Ministries in Houston, Texas, where he facilitates gatherings and conversations aimed at helping others think more deeply about God and about life. He's uh, worked in the private sector, first as a tennis pro, later as a in real uh, state. And he's uh, after transitioning into full-time ministry, he served for 16 years as a pastor at Bridgepoint Bible Church in Houston, Texas. We're talking about his book, Questioning God, Answers to Questions Worth Asking. And these are some of the common questions that are asked by those who are skeptics, who are seekers, or even believers who are perhaps um, a bit discouraged. Now, one of the uh, areas that you also address in the 15 questions that you pose in the book, um, the, the, folk, the fact that Christians are often accused of being hypocrites, that's probably an accusation that fits fairly well. Well, if the accusation mm-hmm. is true, why should anyone believe in Christianity? Are Christians mm-hmm. the measure of faith um, and whether or not someone should follow, uh, follow Jesus or how should, how should we address that, uh, yeah. that accusation? Well, if we dismiss Christianity because Christians are hypocrites, essentially we have to dismiss every worldview and every person. because Every parent, every politician, every... Everyone, right? It doesn't matter who you are, you have a certain standard, and, and no one lives up even you know, to their own standard perfectly. So, um, so if, we're, if we're sort of measuring hypocrites simply by people who can't live up perfectly to their own standard, then then certainly we would be dismissing Christians as well as others. So, you know, I think what's what's more important is to uh, to look at not just what Christians are, sort of how Christians behave, although I, I don't think that's unimportant, that you think it's important, um, but to look rather at what they say to be true, particularly if what they say to be true is based on what Scripture has to say, and looking at that instead, because ultimately Christianity is not about Christians, it's about Christ. Mm-hmm. And so we've, we've got to sort of help people get back to the original when they're disturbed by hypocrites. Um, you know, one thing that people forget oftentimes is that Jesus hated hypocrites. 
So if you don't like hypocrites, you're not against Jesus. You're with Jesus. You're on his side because he didn't he didn't like them uh, as well. So um, so I think we really do need to get back to Jesus when we see Christians disappoint us and to see if uh, the problem isn't that they're sort of living up to a faulty Christianity, but rather that they are not living up to what Christianity has to say and what it has to say is actually good. Now, as a Christian, when we're confronted by that accusation, what's the best way to respond? Because you can't say, Mm. well, no, no, we're not. Well, Mm. yeah, a lot of times we are. It's despite our best efforts, a lot of times we are. How should we respond to that accusation? Lots of times we can say that. That's right. We can just admit to it and uh, say, yeah, I'm I'm one of those that don't live up perfectly to what, uh, you know, what God would have to say um, and you sort of admit to that and sort of move on from that point. So, you know, if you went to a doctor and the doctor told you, hey, your, your lungs are really not in good shape, you're smoking, you need to stop smoking. Um, and then you'd sort of left the doctor's appointment and you, you drove out and you saw the doctor taking a smoke out the back of the building. <laughs> you might say, man, what a hypocrite. And you'd be right in some ways. Um, but that doesn't change the rightness of the advice. Even though we might say someone is a hypocrite, we still need to look at sort of what's being said and is it worthy of, of consideration and worthy of following. Well, let's go to the source. What makes the Bible an authentic text? Uh, why mm. should we base our lives around uh, the Bible? Has it been discredited or can it be um, affirmed? Mm, yeah. Well, I think there's really three big questions that uh, sort of surround the scripture and whether we consider it reliability. The first is this authenticity, like is what we have today what was originally written? I mean, if it's been changed over time, then, you know, then we would have a lot of reason to, to doubt it. But we have really good evidence that shows that it has been uh, copied and preserved very well over the, the centuries and over the last couple thousand years. And we have that through uh, many, many ancient manuscripts that we can compare with one another. So I think we can say it's authentic. Um, then we have to ask the question, well, is it accurate? Maybe it's been copied well, but it's just full of, you know, make-believe stories. And what we do there is we simply need to look at sort of history. And does history corroborate what we see in the Bible? Are the people, the places, the events uh, mentioned elsewhere? And consistently, we see they are mentioned elsewhere and that the Bible is corroborated. So we have, for example, um, seven uh, non-Christian writers within the first hundred years after Jesus that speak about Jesus, that he was crucified, for example, or that he was sort of did ministry in Judea, that he even did miracles. All those things are corroborated, corroborated by people who weren't Christians soon after Jesus's uh, death. And so I think we can say, well, it's it's accurate, too. It's not only authentic, but it's accurate. And then the last question is, well, maybe it's just history that's been recorded well, but why should we believe it's from God? And I think the answer there is it's kind of threefold. First of all, um, if if the Bible is good history, then there are lots of miracles and lots of fulfilled prophecies. <laughs> so, um, and those things point to the fact that this book is a book from from God, not from from man. So these are sort of the first two points. And then I think the third one is, and, and Jesus even speaks of this, if we're willing to begin to put what the Bible has to say into practice in our own lives, 
Jesus says that we'll begin to see that it is from God. We'll see the worth. We'll see the value of it. And so um, I think we then we can say that it is authentic, it's accurate, and it is authoritative as well. It is the Word of God to us. We're talking about the book Question, Questioning God, Answers to Questions Worth Asking. And these are very common questions, concerns, thoughts that are expressed uh, all across the fruited plain about God and Christianity and the Bible. Can it be uh, relied upon? Is it relevant to me today? The claims of Christianity and so on are all covered in this book. And it's, as you pointed out earlier in our conversation, it's designed for people who have genuine questions and are looking to be taken seriously and to to find genuine answers. Um, is is uh, being a good person, this is another issue that comes up, is being a good person? person just not good enough when it comes to eternal life. You know, I I believe Jesus was a good teacher. Uh, I believe the Bible is was certainly worth reading. I'm a good person. I'm certainly better than you can fill in the blank. Um, so wh- why is it important for me to conform to other elements in Scripture when I'm a I'm a pretty good person? Yeah. I'm not Vladimir yeah. Putin. I'm I'm pretty good. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. And, and yeah, I think most people actually are they sort of feel that way. They feel like I'm a, I'm a, I'm a good person. So, um, you know, one way to sort of look at it though, is um, to consider um, how you would react if, if suddenly, uh, if let's say you're in a public place, a restaurant or uh, some other public place, maybe a classroom, if you're a student, if around the walls of that room for everyone to see were all your thoughts and deeds of even just the last, couple of months, um, all the things you didn't do that you should have done, all the ways you could have been nice to someone and you chose not to, the mean things you said, the thoughts that went through your head towards people, what would your reaction be to that? Now, when I've shared that with people, everyone I've ever shared it with said, I would run out of the room. <laughs> I would go hide. I would go live where no one could find me anymore. And so if that's our reaction, then, well, maybe we're not so good mm. after all. We might be better than some other people, but compared to sort of the holiness and goodness of God, I think we fall short. I mean, one way that I describe it is this. If if uh, we're all in California and we're trying to get to Hawaii, to paradise, some of us might be a little better swimmers than others. Some might get only, you know, 100 feet. They're not very good swimmers at all. Some might be able to go a mile. Some might be able to go 10 miles, but nobody's getting to Hawaii. <laughs> so no one's that good of a swimmer. And we need someone to come alongside us and sort of grab us by the hand and, and sort of pull us on board so that we can paradise. Well, the book, once again, is Questioning God, Answers to Questions Worth Asking, uh, asking questions that people are genuinely concerned about and providing answers that take those uh, those questions seriously and reflect a, a biblical worldview. John Hopper, thank you so much for the book and thank you for taking time to join us here today. Uh, great to be with you, Georgine. Really appreciate it. Bye-bye. Uh, by Bye-bye. the way, you can uh, learn more at questioninggod.com, or if you'd like to learn more about Search Ministries, searchnational.org. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, News and Traffic, up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. I know many of us have watched very closely what's happening in Ukraine. We've been praying. We've 
wondered what we can do to help. And certainly praying is the best place to begin. And we have access to the throne of grace. So we're grateful for that. But how do we pray? Well, joining us uh, to talk a bit more about that is Dave Kubal. He is CEO and president of Intercessors for America. It's a grassroots organization. They've united over 300,000 citizens to pray and to take action on issues confronting America. The organization has been involved in filing amicus briefs and recent landmark cases before the Supreme Court on issues like pro-life and religious liberty. And he also serves on the National Faith Advisory Board, as well as the boards of the National Prayer Committee and the National Day of Prayer Task Force. He's authored many books, including Inspired Prayers. He's been in national ministry for over 25 years, married to his high school sweetheart, and resides in Washington, D.C. with his family. In addition to Intercessors for America, they have most recently established intercessors for Ukraine, helping American Christians know how to pray for our brothers and sisters there, uh, meeting their immediate needs with UkraineMeals.com. And he joins us today to help paint a, perhaps a more accurate picture of what's happening and how we might pray and if the prayers we've been offering are being answered. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dave Kubal. Well, Georgine, thank you so much, and thank you for such a kind introduction. Great to be with you tonight. Well, I love I love to talk to people who are committed to interceding, whether we're talking about our own country or we're talking about, in this case, Ukraine. I want to just begin by talking a little bit about Intercessors for America, uh, which, again, has involved some 300,000-plus uh, citizens to pray for what's happening here. Tell us about how it started and what you all are doing. Well, Intercessors for America was actually founded nearly 50 years ago. Uh, Derek Prince, uh, a very famous biblical uh, teacher, was uh, just finishing a book called Shaping History Through Prayer and Fasting, and he was on a speaking tour and challenged a group of people to start an organization praying for the ministry. So we've been going strong ever since, and it's uh, just my delight to lead uh, such an incredible army of intercessors that have the opportunity to shape history through prayer. Now, as I mentioned, some 300,000 believers are part of this network. How did, how did folks find out about what you're doing, and how do you connect with one another in order to agree in prayer? Well, Intercessors for America is three things. It's news, prayer, and action. And anybody can go on our website or Google Intercessors for America to find us, and you can sign up to receive our daily uh, points of prayer and intercession. We have a full, legit news prayer uh, feed that we post six to eight articles a day. So that's news. And then once you get into the community, as you said, hundreds of thousands, and really we touch millions of people a month through all of our resources, people have the opportunity to to join in live prayer, webcasts, and in all sorts of things. But that's really what we find the most encouraging because intercessors are largely by themselves and largely discouraged, not having a sense that God is hearing them or answering the prayer. And so our community is so important. And then the last thing is action. We provide the opportunity really with a touch of a button for people to in, uh, involve, get involved in uh, communicating to their legislators on specific issues. So Intercessors for America is news, prayer, and action. Now, I know that we have access as individuals to the throne of grace. What's the value of praying, agreeing in prayer along with others as touching this issue or that concern? What's the value of uh, intercessors 
agreeing to pray together uh, on these issues? Well, in in the mind and in the mystery of prayer and the mystery of God, I I think that um, the the example of that we that we see in Revelations where our prayers go into the bowls that produces the aroma before our God. I, I believe that on certain issues that it takes a critical mass of um, critical mass of hearts that are concerned about an issue that uh, convinces our God that. It is time for him to move. And so uh, so that's really the need for us to combine together. And I'm, I'm also asked often, what's the difference between prayer and intercession? Both are appropriate. Prayer is bringing our needs before the Lord, but intercession is standing between our God and our, our, um, our nation, hearing from God how we can pray into being God's desires for our nation. So Prayer and intercession, two different things, both important but very different. How did um, intercessors for Ukraine come about? Yeah, you know, Georgina, it was really a miracle from God back. uh, We're seeing a lot about the Biden administration and Hunter Biden and his involvement um, in Ukraine. And and really it was back when all of this surfaced with the Russia collusion and, and that whole um, that whole storyline that we were approached by a group of men who want from Ukraine who wanted to start a ministry of mobilized people praying for the nation. And we thought it was miraculous, you know, that they would reach out to us. We weren't looking to start intercessors for Ukraine, um, but we wound up with them and we prayed with them and walked with them and supported them. Uh, financially for a number of years, and their ministry really flourished. And little did we know that now, at this point in time, their ministry would be ever more important than it ever was, as we see them with a very mature, mobilized network of prayer in the country of Ukraine. One of the things we'll talk about uh, a little later in our conversation is not only how people are praying for Ukraine and how you're connecting with Ukrainians who are in leadership and are facing this very difficult set of circumstances. But some of the answers that you have witnessed to prayers that are being offered, I think we sometimes pray about a distant concern and have no idea how those prayers are being answered in the lives of individuals we may never meet. You've had the opportunity to communicate and have ongoing communication with those who are um, crying out for uh, intercessors and are also um, expecting that people around the world are praying for them and that God will show up. Yeah, you're so right. And, you know, I think that's the thing that fuels our passion to pray even deeper is when we see and hear about answered prayer. And and I got to tell you that the miraculous stories that are coming um, to us from our partners in Ukraine uh, are amazing. Here's a couple of, of examples there were a uh, a number of Russian planes full of paratroopers that were um, scheduled to come, drop their paratroopers in uh, the west, the eastern side of Ukraine, and um, the prayer wall in that area of the country was alerted, and they began to pray and intercede. And so, Georgina, I mean, this is a true story. You're not going to believe what happened, but these. Russian paratroopers jumped out of the plane, and as their parachutes deployed, they were floating to the ground. 
a wind came and literally blew the entire regiment from Ukraine territory literally in back into Russian territory. Another example, in the southern part of the country, uh, in a naval port, there was uh, a Russian military uh, boat that was attempting to land and deploy um, their army. Once again, for four days, a storm <coughs> battered that part of the Black Sea in a way that these soldiers were unable to be deployed. Another example is one of our leaders is in a town uh, called Dnipro, which is just about 50 kilometers north of the uh, nuclear power plant, Shabaporitsa, that uh, has been taken over by the Russians. And, and they have a bomb shelter in their in their uh, the basement of their church. It was built right after World War II. And, and so this past Sunday, they organized eight hours of praise and worship. And over the previous weeks, their air, um, air uh, siren of, of um, bombs being potentially dropped on Dnipro had gone off multiple times uh, each day. But during this eight hours of praise and worship, uh, these sirens did not go off once. It wasn't until about 30 minutes after that eight hours of praise and worship when they were no longer praising God that the sirens went off uh, for the first time in eight hours. So, if so you've been those are just a couple of examples. <laughs> yeah, if you've been praying yeah. for Ukraine, this is encouraging to hear examples of how God is answering. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with David, uh, Dave Kubal. He is the CEO and president of Intercessors for America, a grassroots organization uniting over 300,000 believers to pray and then take action on issues confronting this country as well as in Ukraine. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dave Kubal. He is the CEO and president of Intercessors for America. They've recently established a relationship with Ukrainian brothers and sisters and not only are praying with understanding for their needs there, but also seeing God's hand at work uh, in some very difficult situations. Um, for Ukrainian leaders, it has to be incredibly challenging to oversee congregations, to minister to your community under very difficult circumstances. What are you witnessing as the greatest challenge for those in leadership, and how might we pray for them? Yeah, you're so right. You know, to be the body of Christ, to be a pastor at a time of war when your country is seen so much violence is is terrible. I mean, one of our leaders in Ukraine, he's a pastor in the city of Sumy. Uh, his associate pastor chose to stay behind to help minister to folks, and he was killed uh, just a couple of weeks ago. It, it's just, it, it's terrible. So the, the bravery and the understanding that is needed in this day is incredible. One of our pastors who is uh, those uh, people you know, in the east, in the west here, we call them refugees. But those traveling from the eastern part of the country to the western part of the country, these this pastor calls them guests as they pass through his church, as he is able to meet their needs. And um, we've provided a million meals with a, a bunch of different organizations to um, people 
within the Ukraine, delivering them through our pastors there, and they're able to meet the physical needs. But Georgina, I think one of the things that I think people need to understand to pray about this situation is they need to understand the mindset of the Russians and the mindset of President Putin in order to effectively know how to pray. To understand that you really have to go back centuries and understand the history of the czars within uh, this part of the globe. This all started with uh, this uh, gentleman named Muscovoy in the 1200s. And and the Encyclopedia Britannica, now Christians, everybody listen to this, describe this, this, this ruler as the grand principality that started this concept, and I'm using my quote fingers here, gathering the Russian lands. So this grand principality, Muscovoy, started this concept of this Russian domination of this part of the globe of gathering the Russian lands. And that led to all of these czars, uh, Ivan the Terrible, uh, Nicholas the Great. And all of these czars were very repressive in, their, in the way they controlled their, uh, their, their civilization. And they were very restricting in things like religious freedoms. And that is the mindset of President Putin. He sees himself as a continuation of these czars. And those of us who have a spiritual mind understand spiritual territorial powers. That's what we're seeing work its way out in the natural in this day. Now, I, I, I know that in this country, some of the members of our Russian community are suffering because people are imposing upon them the decisions that are being made by leaders in Russia. What do you say about and to the Russian people who are essentially victims to the decisions that their leaders are making and how we as believers ought to consider them and how we might pray for them as well? Yeah, I mean, we've got to pray that the citizens of Russia rise up and put an end to this um, this regime, this um, powerful force that has been over this nation for years and years. And, and you know, of course, we wouldn't want to just um, be um, violent or angry um, indiscriminately against those Russians in the States. Um, because we don't know exactly where they're at. But the fact of the matter is, is that their leader is, is tyrannical. Their yes. leader is committing war crimes at this moment in time, and he needs to stop. And the Russian people, they need to understand what their leader is doing, and things need to be put in place in that country, and then in the UN, in the European Union, and all of those forces need to come together and tell this man to stop this unprovoked aggression. Yeah, absolutely. So give us some pointers. How can we pray for first the church in Ukraine uh, and how can we pray for the people in general in Ukraine? Well, the, the Ukrainians that we partnered with for intercessors for Ukraine, they've been praying for years that there would be a revival in the country of Ukraine. And they prayed that regardless of what it takes for God to move, that they wanted to see that happen. And Georgine, I can tell you that we're getting without the food, this million meals that we sent over to them. They have the opportunity to present the gospel. And men are coming to Christ like no other time. As you know, that every, every adult male needs to stay behind and fight for the country. And so they are 
they are fearing for their lives or fearing for their families or fearing for their country. So they're reaching out to God in ways that they have never seen. So that we're right on the cusp of a, of a great revival and a great awakening happening in that country. So that's one of the biggest things that we can be praying about, that the gospel would go forth to these receptive hearts. Mm. Yeah, it's um, it's fascinating to consider that Ukraine has been a mission-sending country for a number of years in that region. And the, the circumstances they're currently under, that God would move in a way that would result in revival under these circumstances, is just, to think about, it's just... Um, difficult to even imagine, and yet God moves in ways that we don't necessarily um, understand from our vantage point. But we need to pray for the, the people of Ukraine and that there would be revival. Now, for, for folks who are interested in learning more about Intercessors for America and Intercessors for Ukraine and UkraineMeals.com, what's the best way for them to connect with you and stay stay connected? So the collection point of all of that is our website, and just Google Intercessors for America. The actual URL is ifapray.org, and we we get front lines prayer requests every single day from our people in Ukraine. Uh, today, they posted praises that the U- Ukrainian um, defense shot down seven planes, one UAV, one helicopter, two missiles, and they sank a, a a a Russian uh, military boat in Berdansk. And we also, they're also asking for specific prayers that um, the Belarusian army would not be mobilized. They're asking for specific prayers against chemical weapons being Mm. released. Um, And so uh, really every single day we're getting frontline reports, stuff you will never see in the news. And we post it on our website and it comes right from our Ukrainian friends. Well, again, I would encourage our listeners to connect, to know how to pray, and to be encouraged to see how God is moving in that area, even under these very difficult circumstances. Well, uh, David Kubal, thank you so much for talking with us. I thank you for calling believers together to pray for this country as well as Ukraine and for giving us an opportunity to stay connected with our brothers and sisters uh, over there and to pray um, with understanding and to agree in prayer for the things that they need at this at this time. Well, thanks for the opportunity, Georgie. Appreciate it very much. Again, Dave Kubal, or Kubal, is the CEO and president of Intercessors for America, the grassroots organization uniting over 300,000 believers to pray for this country and the outreach um, Intercessors for Ukraine. And updates are on their website on a regular basis. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband bought $2 million worth of Tesla stock while she pushed for green spending. Some are suggesting a conflict of interest. Well, from that story, with Democrats pushing for higher levels of green energy spending, the husband of the House Speaker bought 2,500 shares of Tesla stock, according to recent congressional filings. The husband of Pelosi um, purchased the shares last Thursday, and the filings were published on Monday. He paid $500 a share, or $2.18 million at a time of purchase. 
Well, shares rose um, to $872 each by the end of that same day. Well, since executing the trade, shares of the electronic vehicle and clean energy company surged about 19 percent, reaching 1036 at one point. Former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright passed away. She died of cancer. The former Secretary of State died at age 84 on Wednesday. Her family announced in a statement appointed by former President Bill Clinton in 1997. She was the first female U.S. Secretary of State. CNN reports that Albright was a central figure in President Bill Clinton's administration, first serving as U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations before becoming the nation's top diplomat in his first term. Alcohol-related deaths increased 25% from 2019 to 2020. That's according to a recent study found that alcohol-related deaths spiked during the first year of the COVID pandemic by 25% over the previous year. In 2020, alcohol-related deaths accounted for 3% of all U.S. deaths, with the largest increase occurring in people 35 to 44 years old. In fact, deaths due to alcohol-related causes outnumbered COVID deaths in Americans younger than 65 years of age, validating the concerns expressed by many that the government's overly aggressive response to COVID, shutting down vast swaths of the economy and social distancing rules, was a cure that was worse than the disease. Now, whether or not an alternative might have been better is uh, open to debate and is currently being debated. A recent Monmouth University poll found that 48% of Americans think the U.S. is more divided since the president took office, and 73% believe the country is on the wrong track. Now, the poll found that um, divided was the most common response from those surveyed when they were asked to provide one word to describe the current state of the country. Evidently, when the president declared that his aim while in office was to unite the country, he must have actually meant to divide because nearly everything has pointed to that direction, and that's what the poll reflected. North Korea has reportedly test-launched its latest intercontinental ballistic missile, the first such launch since 2017. Following that launch, North Korea's neighbors quickly expressed their opposition, with Japanese Prime Minister stating, These series of actions taken by North Korea threaten the peace and security of our country, the region, and the international community, and they're absolutely unacceptable. South Korea's soon-to-be-leaving president, Moon Jae-in, also condemned the ICBM launch, contending that it posed a serious danger to the international community as well as the Korean Peninsula amid a war in Ukraine. Well, the launch ended North Korea's self-imposed moratorium following Donald Trump's direct diplomatic overtures to Kim Jong-un. The ICBM launches were successful, with the missile estimated to have been in the air for 71 minutes while traveling 680 miles before hitting the ocean. Well, NATO reports that 7,000 to 15,000 Russian troops are dead in Ukraine. Russia has not achieved major object, uh, objectives a month into the invasion, the Pentagon says. And if Russia lashes out at the United States over Ukraine-related sanctions by mounting aggressive cyber attacks, the most likely targets would be the financial sector, defense contractors, and unsuspecting but vulnerable small businesses. That's according to cybersecurity experts. A top investigator on the House Select Committee on January 6th has a history of fabricating claims to smear political dissidents. 
David Buckley, who formerly served as the CIA inspector general, is now leading House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's probe of the Capitol riot as the committee's staff director. In October of last year, Buckley was among the, I should say, 2020. Buckley was among the dozens of former intelligence officials who sought to delegitimize stories from Hunter Biden's abandoned Delaware laptop, which implicated then-candidate Joe Biden and his son's potentially criminal overseas business activity as Russian disinformation. President Biden cut border funding as his policies are about to overwhelm the border. And airline CEOs are asking the president to drop the mask mandate. Twitter responded to Babylon Bee's appeal, keeping it locked out of its account. Apparently satire is now officially dead. On this day in history, 1882, German scientist Robert Koch announces in Berlin that he has discovered the bacillus responsible for tuberculosis. 1958, Elvis Presley is inducted into the U.S. Army at the draft board in Memphis, Tennessee, before boarding a bus for Fort Chaffee, Arkansas. Presley would undergo basic training at Fort Hood, Texas, before being shipped off to Germany. 1976, Isabel Perón, the president of Argentina, is uh, deposed by her country military. 1988, former national security aides Oliver North and John Poindexter and businessman Richard Secord um, and Albert Hakim uh, plead not guilty to charges stemming from the Iran-Contra affair. 1989, the supertanker Exxon Valdez runs aground on a reef in Alaska's Prince William Sound and begins leaking an estimated 11 million gallons of crude oil. 1995, after 20 years, British soldiers rather stop routine patrols in Belfast, Northern Ireland. 1998, two students ages 13 and 11 13 and 11 opened fire outside Jonesboro Westside Middle School in Arkansas, killing four classmates and a teacher. 1999, NATO launches airstrikes against Yugoslavia, marking the first time in its 50-year existence that it had ever attacked a sovereign country. On this day in history, 2014, an Egyptian court sentences to death nearly 530 suspected backers of ousted President Mohamed Morsi, over a deadly attack on a police station, capping a swift two-day mass trial in which defense attorneys are not allowed to present their case. 2014, five former employees of imprisoned financier Bernard Madoff are convicted at the end of a six-month trial in New York City that cast them as extensions of their boss. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, spurred by a call to action from student survivors of the school shooting in Parkland, Florida, that left 17 people dead, hundreds of thousands of teenagers and their supporters rally against gun violence in the streets of the nation's capital and in cities across the country. Well, Americans already faced uh, searing inflation when gas prices surged to an all-time high earlier this month. Now, some lawmakers want the federal government to offer stimulus uh, payments or rebate checks to help reduce the pain at the pump. Families with two children could get as much as $300 per month as long as the nation's average gas price exceeds $4 a gallon. That's according to one new bill proposed by Representatives Mike Thompson of California and John Larson of Connecticut and Lauren Underwood of Illinois. All three lawmakers are Democrats. American consumers could be see increasing uh, increased costs of $2,000 this year due to the recent surge in gas prices. And that's on top of an extra $1,000 in grocery store costs due to the steepest rise in inflation since 1982. Already, consumers are reporting they're cutting back on spending or driving 
driving less, with most blaming sticker shock at the pump. The gas stimulus would provide middle-class Americans with monthly payments to ease the financial burden of this global crisis. It would, of course, contribute to inflation, but pay Peter Rob Paul. Um, the One of the lawmakers said in a statement about the proposal referring to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which has pushed gas prices higher, they argue. Currently, millions of Americans would qualify for the payments based on current gas prices, which on average $4.24 a gallon on March the 22nd, according to AAA. Higher in some places, certainly here in the Portland area. Several lawmakers from both sides of the aisle spoke out on the COVID funds going to state and local pet projects. President Biden's signature legislation, that $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, allocated $350 billion to assist struggling localities and states to get through the COVID-19 pandemic. But instead, some states used hundreds of millions of dollars in COVID relief money for pet projects unrelated to the pandemic. Broward County, Florida, for example, dropped $140 million in American tax dollars on a new 29-story luxury hotel overlooking the Atlantic Ocean with 800 rooms and an 11,000-foot spa. Now, I guess that entitles us to just go and stay for free since we already paid for it. Broward County officials defended their use of the money to build the hotel that would be owned by the county, but run by a private management group. County officials changed course with cash they initially earmarked for the hotel project, putting it in the county's general fund to offset tax revenue losses, a federally acceptable use of the money. The money was then transferred back to the hotel project from the general fund. No federal funds will be used to pay any of the costs of developing the hotel project, the county administrator told AP. The county has reviewed the Treasury guidance and modified its use of the funds, she said. Well, in Dutchess County, New York, paid $12 million in federal funds to renovate a Yankees-affiliated minor league team stadium. Apparently, it was infested with pandemic covid Massachusetts saw $5 million in taxpayer dollars pay off debts of the Edward M. Kennedy Institute for the U.S. Senate. Dutchess County officials also backed their use of the money, calling it completely and absolutely consistent with how Congress instructed to spend the money. The Edward Kennedy Institute didn't respond to requests for more details. It's ironic that this criticism emanates from the same congressional members who have brought back pork barrel airmarks. That's what the Dutchess County executive Uh, said in response to criticism of their use of the funds. Tax filings show that the Edward Kennedy Institute was operating in the red between 2015 and 2019 to the tune of $27 million. The expenditures amount to a fraction of the $350 billion made available through last year's American Rescue Plan to help states and local governments weather the crisis. But there are examples of uses of the aid that are inconsistent with the rationale that was offered for the record $1.9 trillion bill. The cash, supporters said, was desperately needed to save jobs, help those in distress, open schools and increase vaccinations. Other pet projects undertaken by states using taxpayer dollars included $400 million to create new prisons in Alabama, $2 million to um, uh, Potawatomi County, Iowa, to buy a private-owned ski area, $6.6 million to replace two Colorado Springs golf courses irrigation systems, and a combined $80 million for tourism marketing campaigns for Puerto Rico, Tucson, Arizona, and Washington, D.C. For months, Republicans warned Americans about the inflationary consequence of the mammoth spending. Representative Greg Murphy from North Carolina 
a practicing physician and GOP doctor's caucus, caucus vice chair, uh, said this AP report confirms what we already knew. The so-called American Rescue Plan was a $2 trillion sham that wasted billions in taxpayer dollars and directly contributed to the current economic crisis. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, tomorrow we'll take a look at headline news. We'll also look at the lighter side of the news. James Blend will join me for that, and we'll share this week's Christian Outlook, a focus on what's happening in Afghanistan. That's the last thing. Um, We'll take a look at what's happening. I can't even think of the name of the place. (laughs) Ukraine, thank you, Sam, on the other side of the glass divided attention here. Well, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg stopped pursuing charges against former President Trump and suspended the investigation indefinitely. One of the top prosecutors who resigned from the office said in his resignation letter, but disagreed with the decision. Mark um, Pomerantz and Carrie Dunn, who had been leading the investigation under the former DA, submitted their resignations last month after Bragg began raising doubts about pursuing a case against the former president. You've reached the decision not to go forward with the grand jury presentation and not to seek criminal charges at the present time, he wrote in the resignation letter, first reported by the New York Times. The investigation has been suspended indefinitely. Of course, that's your decision, he went on to write. Um, I do not question your authority to make it, and I accept that you have made it sincerely. However, he went on to say that a decision made in good faith may nevertheless be wrong. So it appears that the Manhattan attempt to file criminal charges against the former president is pretty much DOA. Well, since the outbreak of COVID-19 two years ago, the American economy can't seem to catch a break. At least for the last year, we can chalk most of the uh, um, most of all of that up to the bureaucratic incompetence and uh, policies that have overseen these current set of events. But One of the facets, food prices in the U.S., has risen 8% in the past 12 months, the largest such increase since 1981. And now with the invasion of uh, Ukraine, it's disrupting global food markets even further. Russia accounts for 19% of the global wheat export market, and Ukraine accounts for 9%. Russia is also the world's largest manufacturer of fertilizer, and these factors point to continued disruption in commodities markets and rising food prices. How bad things will get is unknowable and open to debate. One school of thought points to a catastrophe with famine in the Middle East and African countries that depend on Russian wheat. Surging wheat costs have already destabilized economies still unsteady from the pandemic. India, on the other hand, doesn't need Russian wheat. Its own crop accounts for 5% of the global market. But India is vulnerable just the same because it's the world's largest importer of Russian fertilizer. This will, in turn, raise wheat prices even more, as Indian wheat production is more expensive or reduced. Many other fertilizer imports will feel the crunch as well. Uh, Try as they might, no one has yet been able to produce robust crop yields on a mass scale without fertilizer. But famine, economic collapse, hardly, says say others, who call for letting the market work itself out. This approach suggests that consumers will adapt to shortages with short-term substitutes, while other 
uh, producers gear up to fill the demand. There were comparable isolated dips in global wheat production in the 90s and as recently as 2018, and market correction soon followed without any countries taking drastic measures. Suspending the renewable fuel standard to free up grain for food isn't likely to have an immediate impact on food prices, nor will increasing the amount of ethanol to relieve pressure on gas prices. These short-term half-solutions would come too late to alleviate the pain we're now feeling. It's government meddling in the commodities markets that caused the food prices to go askew to begin with and long before the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. In a better world, with smarter economic policies, ethanol wouldn't be mandated. More can be done by helping countries find alternative food sources. So will there be a global food supply shortage? And that's a real risk. Different views on how that will move forward, but something that is being closely watched. And finally, there's an effort underway within America's largest Protestant denomination to pull the Southern Baptist Convention back from falling further into the false gospel of social justice or wokeness. So writes Thomas Gallatin, over the last several years, the Southern Baptist Convention, he points out, has found itself in a contentious fight that in many ways mirrors the broader culture war that's been raging across the country at large. Leadership in the convention has been steadily drifting left as concerns over how the church appears to the watching world have been used to justify compromises on principles and standards that were once considered foundational to the faith, or at least to the denomination. Like many within broader American culture, the siren song of social justice has been playing more loudly in our ears, in their ears in particularly, than the biblical gospel call. As a result, explicit anti-biblical views such as critical race theory have been allowed to sneak in. Well, as the reality of a battle for holding to biblical Christianity and the true gospel has become more intense, a group of conservatives within the SBC is stepping up in an effort to direct the church back onto the solid ground of God's word. So writes Thomas Gallatin. He says the group of concerned Southern Baptists has nominated Pastor Tom Askell, the president of the SBC and missionary and and author Vadi Bakum for president of the SBC's Pastors Conference. Uh, Askell is the pastor of a typical SBC church in Cape Coral, or rather Coral, Florida, and also serves as the president of Founders Ministries and the Institute for Public Theology. He contends that much of the problem with SBC leadership in recent years stems from the fact that churches like ours have been dismissed time and again by SBC leadership when we raise concerns about things that are happening in some of our institutions, he says. We're told, you know, there's nothing to see here. You're meddling in business that doesn't pertain to you. And he points to some examples of this dynamic at uh, at play, such as SBC seminary faculty pushing critical race theory ideology onto students and encouraging them to identify their right privilege, or the SBC's adopting of committee's resolution in 2019 to classify CRT as an analytical tool useful for explaining how race has and continues to function in society. Well, Bauckham, who is black and has been quite outspoken against social justice and critical race theory movements, calling them false gospels, he published a book last year titled Fault Lines, The Social Justice Movement and Evangelicalism's Looming Catastrophe, which became a bestseller. If he's elected president of the SBC's Pastors Conference, he'll uh, have an opportunity to see a revival in great biblical preaching in the SBC. He explains the pastor's conference has the potential to play a significant part in that, especially if it is part of a larger movement that brings um, 
a man like Tom Askell into the SBC's presidency. Well, the Southern Baptist Convention's annual meeting is scheduled to take place in Anaheim, California in June, and a new president will be elected. Current SBC president Ed Litton is uh, taking the unusual step of not running for re-election following controversy over his plagiarism of sermons. Hopefully the SBC will experience a solidification of biblical fidelity with a leadership primary concern as uh, this pair say the priority is not whether the world is watching, but rather that God is watching, that he's uh, he alone defines our terms and sets our agenda and God is not woke. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest denomination in the country and uh, the direction that it takes in this most recent what could be, I suppose, considered a controversy. Well, tomorrow on the program, we'll certainly take a look at uh, headline news and the lighter side of the news, but we'll also share uh, this week's Christian outlook in which uh, some of the conversation will focus not only on what's happening in uh, the the battle between the Ukraine, and I shouldn't say the battle between, but the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I say the battle between um, reluctantly because while Ukraine has held its ground rather impressively. Uh, The competition, uh, the Russian munitions personnel, the potential that Belarus will enter into the conflict uh, makes it a very uneven uh, conflict. Um, The meeting with uh, NATO that we talked about earlier in the program uh, may weigh heavily in the outcome and certainly what occurs over the next uh, several weeks. The resolve of NATO, the G7, and the European Union may play a significant role in deterring Uh, the advance of Russian forces in the country. But we'll uh, hear from some of my counterparts from around the country as they've interviewed specialists on the subject. And we'll also uh, hear an interview on how to deal with the stress um, and the anxiety of this particular season. It's certainly not new to the human heart, but we have some unusual elements that have contributed to the, the version, the particular version that we're experiencing today. So that's all coming up on the Christian Outlook, the second hour of tomorrow's program. I want to thank James Blind for producing today's program, Sam Maupin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night, and I hope you'll join us here again tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.